Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Aideen Finnegan. Yesterday, we learned of the death of cervical cancer campaigner Vicky Phelan. She was 48. Vicky left behind a husband, Jim, and her two children, 16-year-old Amelia and Dara, who's 10. She was a force to be reckoned with, and, and that's and that's meant in the most positive way. Um, she'll be remembered, I think, with huge affection by the Irish people. In 2020, Vicky spoke to the Irish Times journalist Jen Hogan about the struggles and joys of being a parent. Jen and Vicky kept in touch, and later in the podcast, I'll speak to her about the Vicky she knew. There are no winners here today. I am terminally ill, and there is no cure for my cancer. In 2018... Vicky was awarded two and a half million euro in damages from the lab that misread her cervical smear, missing the signs of cancer. Vicky became a household name for her defiant resistance in the face of her terminal illness and a seemingly cruel bureaucracy. Here's Vicky speaking outside the court in 2018. My settlement will mostly be spent on buying me time and on paying for clinical trials to keep me alive and to allow me to spend more time with my children. I truly hope that some good will come of this case and that there will be an investigation into the cervical check programme as a result of this. Simon Carswell is public affairs editor with the Irish Times. Simon, Vicky did indeed get the investigation she wanted because going public led to the Scali report, which obviously exposed failures in cervical check. But before we get to that, tell us, how did Vicky end up in that position, giving that address outside the High Court in 2018? Well, she ended up in court because she was very angry at, at the discovery of an audit of old smear tests. And she took the court case because, uh, and she said it in court and outside court as well, that she had been diagnosed with cancer in 2014 and then in 2017, she was told that the cancer diagnosis was terminal. But actually, it was in the kind of cursory look at a file, as she was, which she was, she was left alone with during a regular checkup, that she discovered that there was some um, discrepancies in the smear test results. And when she dug a little further, she discovered that an audit that had been carried out of her 2011 smear test, which had showed that there were no abnormalities, that that original smear test was in fact wrong. And she had waited three years to discover that. So she was very ang angry after that. She spoke about being extremely angry and saying that if I'd been diagnosed, I probably would have had an, a procedure at worse, a hysterectomy. And if I was told sooner, 
I would not be in the position of a terminal cancer diagnosis. So she took that case, she sued the lab that carried out the original smear test and she sued the HSE and that was ultimately settled. The, the most extraordinary act that she did in that whole process was the fact that she decided not to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Normally, when people reach a settlement, out-of-court settlement or a settlement to end a court case, they're asked to sign this substantial gagging clause, essentially, and she refused to do it because she felt there were other women who were affected and she didn't want that truth suppressed for them. I'm so struck by the fact that she did all that digging and managed to find that out, you know, being left alone with her file. I mean... How did she manage to cut through all the red tape and obfuscation and finally to bring that case to court? Well, I think it speaks a lot about her defiance. She was an extraordinary person. I mean, when someone gets a terminal diagnosis, you know, you effectively go away and get your affairs in order and spend the rest of that precious time with your family. But she didn't do that. She wouldn't settle with that. And so she really felt that she needed to speak out and she needed to do it for the other women that were also affected. And the fact that she did it with great defiance and great courage And also as a great communicator, she was excellent at that. She managed to cut through a lot of the legalese, a lot of the medicalese and all the complex bureaucracy that can paralyse the health system. That's why I'm here, Shane. I mean, do you think I want to be here? Uh, You know, if I don't have a huge amount of time left, I certainly don't want to be spending it up here in front of committees, you know. But that's why I'm here, because I want to see change happen. Uh, And no more than Stephen, he should be at home with his two boys. You know, Uh, we want to see change happen because we never want to see this happening again. You know, me, myself and Stephen should not know each other. And I told you that in a bad way. But, you know, look look why we know each other. It's horrible. I mean, Stephen and I met for the first time today, and it was very difficult for both of us. We've been in touch with each other over the phone. But I ha- we haven't met before today, you know. So it's, it's very... That's why we're here. We want to see change. And I, I, I swear to God, over my dead body, you know, unless I see something happening, I will keep at this. You know, simple as that. I think she spoke truth to power and it was a really hard truth for a lot of people to hear. And she put it simply because she was down to earth and ultimately very human. And she was able to cut through that mainly because of the type of person that she was. So she had figured out that had she known about this audit, the alarm bells would have gone off sooner and that the the cancer would not have progressed to the terminal diagnosis that she got. Yes. So she she had been diagnosed with cervical cancer and then years after the smear test had detected no abnormality and she could have benefited from earlier intervention. And subsequently, because she didn't sign that non-disclosure agreement, certainly came out much more quickly than it would have come out. She vowed instead to fight on for those who were impacted by the incorrect test results. And it subsequently emerged that there were more than 200 women who were tested between 2008 and 2018. And they were identified as among those for whom a screening test could have provided a different result or a warning of increased risk or evidence of developing a cancer. And of those 208 women, 162 had not been alerted about earlier audits revealing errors affecting their results. So Vicky's case really broke the dam of disclosure, really, that came through. And as a result of that, more than 200 women discovered that they too had not been informed about misread earlier smear tests. It's amazing that she managed to avoid signing that disclosure agreement, you know, which would have gagged her from from speaking about it because none of us would know about any of this happening today had it not been for that. And I'm sure she was under immense pressure to sign it. She would have been under immense pressure to sign it, as does any litigant when they're involved in such a high profile case. And I think that's what was most amazing about Vicky was that 
she had this terminal diagnosis and she decided, you know, it would have made more sense for her to sign a non-disclosure agreement to enjoy the money that she received by way of settlement and to go off and kind of spend that precious time with her family. But instead, she used it to campaign hard for changes and to help other women who had not got to the truth of their own situations. And she kind of articulated this very, very well when she appeared before a 2018 Oireachtas Committee. I think in 2017, when she got the terminal diagnosis, she was told she had about six to 12 months left to live, depending on whether she went for palliative chemotherapy. She was told, yes, that without palliative chemotherapy, she'd have six months and with it, she might have 12 months. So she received this diagnosis four months before the settlement of her case. So she was fighting this case after hearing this really awful diagnosis. So, I mean, it just speaks to her courage and her bravery in in pursuing the case, but also in her decision not to sign that gagging clause. Absolutely, because if we thought we only had 12 months left to live, many of us would decide, look, I'm just going to spend it with my family and I, I don't have the fortitude to put up that fight. But she did. What happened afterwards? Well, Vicky initially thought there was just 14 women who were not told about the audit of the of the previous smear tests and had the, and those smear tests had been inaccurate. In fact, she was aware of two of those women who had died and she felt very strongly that the families of those two women should know. So well, subsequently what happened, pressure built in the government and the government decided to appoint a public health expert, Dr. Gabriel Scali, who came in to investigate it. And his review identified more than 200 women diagnosed with cervical cancer who were not previously told about the misreported smear tests and they could have been alerted to the early stages of cancer. So Gabriel Scali's report was really instrumental in bringing about the changes and really acting upon what Vicky Phelan had anticipated and was concerned about and suspected was going on behind the scenes. She, you know, has always said that it's important to go for cervical screening. It can change lives, but it failed her essentially. But she had the the tenacity to maintain the the pressure on the state to bring about substantive change off the back of the Scali report. So what did change? Well, the process became much more open. Uh, there was 170 recommendations made by Dr. Gabriel Scali and all but four of those have been acted upon and implemented. Crucially, though, the main one that a lot of people had sought was the issue of open disclosure. That's the policy where doctors are required if a mistake is made that the patients or the patient's families are told about that. Now that has stalled. The efforts to introduce open disclosure still remain on the statutes book. The patient safety bill that would put that into effect is still just at the fourth stage of 11 stage process. And it's been that way for some time in terms of stalling uh, on the legislative books. So that really is the biggest outstanding issue that has yet to be solved uh, arising from, from Vicky's campaigning. And of course, we also have HPV screening now instead of the, the traditional system that we have. And access to drugs like Pembro for, for women that weren't even involved in the uh, the cervical check controversy, I understand. Yeah, Vicky's campaigning didn't just stop at the screening programme itself. She fought hard for people who were in the same situation as her to have access to life-changing and revolutionary drugs. So that really did help a lot of others and the high profile campaigns that Vicky ran using social media very effectively, using traditional media. Her appearances on programmes like The Late Late Show all helped to push awareness of people who were going through similar illnesses as she was. I mean, I'm so struck by how everything she fought for, she did it, you know, without bitterness. I don't remember her taking swipes at politicians or, you know, getting political. I mean, she had an amazing ability to be direct and persistent and forceful. How did authorities respond to her? 
Well, I think they were afraid of her to a large degree. Um, and I think that was down to the fact that the authorities were very aware of her capacity as being this absolutely brilliant communicator. And also the fact that she was direct, she was persistent, she was forceful. Even the statement that was released today after her death by the group that she helped found, co-found, the 221 Plus group, the Cervical Check Patient Support Group, they came out with a really strong statement today and pointed to the fact that Vicky raised her voice in 2018 because she wanted those in power, those with responsibility, to learn from their mistakes. And they put this, their statement in her own words two years ago, she said, I don't want your apologies. I don't want your tributes. I don't want your aide de camp at my funeral. I don't want your accolades or your broken promises. I want action. I want change. I want accountability. And that really summed Vicky up. You know, that very clear message, that very strong defiance, that push to have all these changes introduced. And, and remember, this was a woman fighting a terminal diagnosis who had a very limited amount of time left with her family. And yet she was devoting all this time uh, much of that time when she was undergoing some very difficult treatment for her cancer, she went through with all that. And I think that really stands to what an extraordinary person she was. Jen Hogan, you interviewed Vicky for your parenting column in the Irish Times and you remained in contact over the following two years. And so many of us know her as the campaigner and the advocate. But what was she like at home and around her family and friends and with you? I mean, this was one of the, the beauties of the Parenting on My Shoes series that I got to I got to speak to Vicky. She was the very first person I interviewed for the series. And at the time, I remember her thanking me for um, for thinking of her. Like, I mean, she's an absolute legend and a hero to so many Irish people. And she's thanking me for thinking of her. She was the, the obvious first choice. But she was so gracious, always so gracious and so determined. She was really determined to be truthful and honest and she never shied away from things. And when she spoke about her children, and, and that was, again, one of the lovely consequences of having interviewed her there is that we did chat sometimes afterwards and it was lovely to hear her talk about the kids. And, and she was also very open about how much she missed them, particularly when she went to the States for the experimental treatment. She really found that very difficult to be so far away from them. She spoke also about how hard it was to have to make that decision to talk to her children about her death. The, the thing that most of us, we try to shield our children from, from things on the television and this was her reality. She was having to speak to her children and her son in particular who had heard about his mother's cancer and, and he was aware she had cancer but the possibility of her dying hadn't arisen and he heard about this in the schoolyard as she pointed out and she was always it's funny you said that Aideen she was always so keen not to I suppose have bitterness you know she was very keen to say this was never done in, in kind of bad it was bad intentions but somehow a child had heard about Vicky's situation that her cancer was terminal and she had to have this conversation with Darrow when he was so young and that was devastating for her to have to to have that conversation but she didn't shy away from it she spoke to him in the most age appropriate way that she could and she was always very aware of her teenage daughter too and, and how Amelia would have to take all this on board and she talked about what might happen after her death and she said people were horrified at the sort of discussions that she was having with her children but she said well what do you expect me to do like I have to address this this is going to happen but her love for her children always shone through because that was what her focus was even going to the States when she'd talk about it and she'd say how hard it was to be there it was to get more time to have more time with her children and more time with her family and she never seemed to take any of the time that she had with them for granted I, I had I was listening back to a message that she sent me a voice note she sent me earlier on and she was talking about what a great day it had been a great day because she'd had a wonderful day with her son and she wasn't in pain and she was talking about really simple things I suppose that we all take for granted but she was she, rather than 
rather than worrying about what time she mightn't have in the future, she was living in the now and very much cherishing the time that she had with her son. And she celebrated things like getting a full night's sleep again, all this sort of thing. She had a great way actually of keeping you grounded and keep and changing your perspective, not because you were speaking to somebody who had terminal cancer, but because she was somebody who very much lived in the moment. She didn't just talk the talk, she walked the walk. I mean, she'd overcome so much. And of course, her memoir is called Overcoming because she'd been through so much that awful car crash that she was involved in when she was younger and then the issues with her daughter Amelia when she found out when she was pregnant with her that she had congenital toxoplasmosis and they didn't know what the outcome was going to be. So I suppose she had encountered adversity before but I don't know how she didn't spend her days being angry and bitter that she wouldn't be around to see her children grow up. I I can't imagine a more difficult way to live knowing that you weren't going to see them hit these big milestones like getting married and And the fact that it didn't have to be that way, that the worst that she should have had to do was have a hysterectomy. So how did she stop that bitterness from eating her up and and living her life in the moment, like you say there? I think it was very much, it came back, she set very short um, goals for herself. I remember asking her one time about doing another interview with her a while back and it was, I was projecting onto Christmas. It was actually before Christmas um, passed. And she said she she declined it because she didn't want to go there. She said, I, I want to be here now. I don't want to look so far ahead yet. And thankfully, she got to enjoy that that Christmas with her family. But she was very conscious of staying there. And also, even I, I might send her a text and go, I hope you're minding yourself. I hope you're looking after yourself. And she'd come back to the very simple things again and the things that kind of kept you grounded, being in her PJs with the candle lit, you know, again, having any good time with her children. And the milestones that she had set was she wanted to get to Dara reaching double figures. You know, she had hoped to be around for his communion. So rather than looking too far in the future, she kept these kind of shorter milestones and she celebrated them. There was absolute delight when she got there. And she just, she remained so constantly grateful to everybody and the support. And she always seemed to be amazed at the level of support that she got and the kindness that was shown to her by strangers. She, but... I, 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 th- I think I said it today when, when I was writing about it. It seemed to be, I don't know that she ever really appreciated how much she was adored and respected and held in such high regard in this country. And that's why everybody was willing her on. She just, I suppose she just kept going. And I think she even, a lot of us today, we were devastated to hear the news. But, but Vicky defied all the odds. She was here much longer than anybody expected her to be. And she got more time with her children than she thought she would get. But she had such amazing grace and never let that bitterness go. Even in conversations that I had that weren't for the paper chats that I had with her I never ever heard her be bitter she never showed any bitterness it was just very much focused on what she had and enjoying what she had as much as she could at that time Yeah I mean we've so much to learn from her you know the fact that she was able to do that in the face of death you know quite literally and I feel like I don't want to suggest that other people who have cancer aren't fighting as hard. I know that that there's this thing around using the term fighting or the battle with cancer, but she did fight so hard. And that's not to say that someone else who doesn't have the means to go or the, you know, the the ability to advocate for themselves to get on medical trials. But it's so remarkable how determined she was. And actually, I think I saw in the Irish Times today that she persuaded her mother to allow her to start primary school when she was three. So she was she had such consistency in terms of that. Uh, but yeah, just the, the lengths that she managed to go to, to live those extra few years. 
She did. I mean, I was reading that as well too about her um, starting school so young and she, as I said, she did have this determination that was there in everything that she did and she didn't shy away from the truth. She didn't, she didn't sugarcoat things. She was very, very honest and open and even when she was speaking back when I did the Parenting in My Shoes series, I remember speaking to her about postnatal depression and she brought that up and she talked about losing three and a half years of motherhood to um, postnatal depression and she said a thing that, you know, I know a lot of mothers because they got in touch with me afterwards and they said how much it helped and much that she was so honest. She she said she hated motherhood at one stage. Well, what she also referenced afterwards is that she wasn't on antidepressants and she wasn't in this place where mentally she was finding things really tough. And she cherished that she had this time, that she was with her children, that she got to have this time with them, feeling her best. It's so it's so unfair that such an incredible woman isn't with us, you know. And but she did. She she didn't just live life to the fullest. She she's left a legacy that women and Irish people will be grateful for forevermore. Absolutely, and and much like Laura Brennan, the HPV vaccine campaigner who died in 2019, she allowed the public into her life. You know, making that TV documentary when she could have gone to ground and just you know I would have. I think you know you and you can't put a value on that openness though. But Jen, maybe you could try and explain how meaningful it is that Vicky did that too. Yeah, I mean, if we, I was, I was thinking about this earlier on. I mean, we talk about cervical cancer quite openly now. I'm not sure that we heard about cervical cancer quite so much. We knew it was something that women do. When you hear a Vicky feeling, you're reminded to get your smear test. You're reminded of the importance of this. She spoke about even the the intimate side, the difficulties around sex. She spoke about things that were so private and so personal, but but that maybe women felt they couldn't speak about. You know, she she didn't ever shy away from the truth, and she opened a really, really important conversation and we looked at the consequences beyond the side of, oh, well, you'll have to get treatment and, and your life may be shortened if, if it's terminal. She looked at what she was, she discussed what she was living with now and really opened a re- that conversation and she, in spite of what happened, she really actively encouraged women to get their cervical smear test and to make sure that they had their screening and that we you know, we took care of ourselves and we recognised and owned, recognised, I suppose, our own bodies and knew if there was something wrong that we felt the confidence, I suppose, to address it with our doctors and not be dismissed and not be told, well, your test said such and such a thing. You know, she she brought that test, that second test in 2014. She brought it forward because of the symptoms that she was having, the worrying symptoms. So she very much brought out, she brought a, com- a cancer that was perhaps not spoken about quite so much. She very much brought it to the fore and again, made it such a, such a topic that people spoke about easily and comfortably and they were familiar with and the horrors and all of it, but that we knew more about it, that it wasn't this cancer that was just hidden away, you know, that private, a private cancer. And as I said, the fact that it's so, she's so associated, like Laura, with, with smear tests and with screening and with with um, the HPV vaccines and things like that, she's done an enormous amount in terms of raising awareness as well, not just in terms of the work, work that she's done towards patient ownership of, of their um, health medical material, but also raising awareness and, and keeping it on our minds and looking after ourselves and knowing our symptoms and addressing them, having the confidence to address them with our GP if we feel something's not right. Simon, what do you think Vicky's legacy will be? I think Vicky's legacy will be that of putting truth and honesty above everything else. Those are the words of her solicitor, Keane O'Carroll, today. And I think it sums it up brilliantly. Uh, She was a force for good and a force for saying that truth and honesty trumps everything um, and that everyone should be entitled to find out the truth about them their their medical history and their interactions with the health system. And I think Vicky has shown, fought very much for herself and very unselfishly 
showed that she did not sign a non-disclosure agreement with the purpose of letting people get to the truth of their cases. And I think that's an important legacy that she has shown. And I think she's changed the health system. I think she's changed the conversation radically about what patients can expect of their doctors. And I think that is a very fitting legacy for, for someone like Vicky Phelan, who's an extraordinary woman. Jen Hogan, Simon Carswell, thank you very much for joining us. My dying wish will be for the women of Ireland that because of what has happened in this past year, maybe my last year on earth, they will be able to trust that their lives are in safe hands, that they will be minded and cared for at their most vulnerable and that everything will be done to give them the lives they deserve, the time they deserve with the people they love and who love them and who need them in the world. There will be others who will continue this fight without me when I'm gone because we are all in this together at the end of the day. We all come from that same place, from a mother's womb. This is everybody's story. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. In the News will be back tomorrow. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.